This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Joanna Cook, author of the book, A Woman's Place, U.S. Counterterrorism Since 9-11. Joanna Cook is a senior research fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization at King's College London, adjunct lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, a senior research affiliate with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society, and a non-resident fellow at the Program on Extremism at the George Washington University. She holds a PhD in War Studies and a Master's in Conflict, Security, and Development, both from King's College London, as well as a Bachelor's in Political Science from the University of Regina. Her research interests focus broadly on terrorism and counterterrorism. She regularly presents her research to leading policymakers and practitioners around the world and is a frequent commentator in international media. Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me here today. Can you tell us more about your background and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, of course. From a very early age, I had a real interest in the stories of young women who had survived conflict or who had been surrounded by it. So whether it was Anne Frank's diary, I've lived a thousand years, stories about young women in the wars in Yugoslavia, for example, there was always uh, an interest about women who had uh, been subjected to these kind of conflicts. And as I grew up, I wanted to be a war correspondent, took me to places around the world that really started to, to kind of open my eyes a little bit more to what contemporary conflict issues looked like. So I had a chance to go down to places like Rwanda. I was based out of Turkey and traveling through the Middle East a little bit. And the one thing that really struck me as I continued to kind of look more and more at conflicts and read these stories is that, you know, women were often viewed as victims or portrayed as victims in uh, in international discourses, in the news, in the media. But a lot of the women I saw were the ones that were rebuilding their communities after a conflict. They were ones that were uh, in some cases, you know, perpetrators of violence. Uh, they were ones that were actually uh, working in the police forces to try and secure their societies. And this was a real story that was not being told or an angle that really wasn't getting the kind of attention I thought I deserved, or I thought it deserved. And that's really what's kind of drawn me to this field. Um, I started my PhD in 2013 and was looking at women in counterterrorism at this time. And this is exactly the period aligned almost uh, perfectly with the rise of ISIS. And so alongside this focus on women in counterterrorism, it also gave me an opportunity to really see the roles of women evolve in this jihadist group in a way that we just hadn't seen before. So that's kind of brought me up to where, where we are today and, 
and the real kind of focus of the book. Using the policies and practices of the Department of Defense, USAID, and Department of State in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, you examine the role of women and gender in U.S. counterterrorism efforts following the attacks of 9-11. How did you choose to scope the book to these agencies and countries? Yeah, like, as you all know, there's dozens of agencies, uh, departments that focus on some aspect of counterterrorism around the U.S. government. Um, but the reason I've landed on these three is if you look at uh, if you look at the national security strategies, if you look at national strategies for combating terrorism, if you look at uh, interagency efforts to combat terrorism internationally, it's these three, uh, the Department of Defense, Department of State and USAID, that most consistently were working together on programming that related to women. And this is something that really became visible as well in the National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Um, you know, what these three departments uh, and the U.S. Um, Agency for International Development represent are all of the actors present in that full spectrum approach. So really looking at everything from the kind of preventative uh, CVE efforts that you'd see coming out of USAID all, all the way through to kind of diplomatic policing and direct kinetic military actions on the ground. So these three uh, agencies often work together in efforts in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Yemen. Um, and I think are really uh, the key agencies that really lead U.S. Uh, international efforts in this space. And the reason I chose uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, and Yemen, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are two very clear examples of the U.S. at war and looking at what 9-11 meant for these two, two conflicts in relation to women. But I think Yemen is a really unique and often um, underexamined case study because, you know, Yemen has been considered, you know, at times it's ebbed and flowed in terms of its threat or perceived threat level. Um, you know, whether it was uh, Anwar al-Awlaki uh, drawing uh, or inspiring kind of Western recruits, uh, whether it was uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula uh, attempting to perpetrate uh, attacks against the U.S. abroad. You know, Yemen's often been a very active uh, yet overlooked example where there was so much activity also going on in terms of U.S. counterterrorism efforts in a non-conflict space. Uh, the U.S. was never at war in, Af in Yemen. Uh, and it really represented another kind of interesting example of uh, how counterterrorism could be examined. Syria obviously came up a little bit later on, particularly with the rise of ISIS. Um, but it's one of the ones that I examined a little bit uh, less in the book. It's primarily Afghanistan, Iraq, and Yemen. You put forward a multi-layered framework for examining women's roles in counterterrorism, looking at the different ways women were involved, how they were involved, and the narratives or justifications surrounding their involvement. How did you go about developing this framework? Yeah, you know, this framework was something that I've really tried to kind of shape as a, as a tool for, for practitioners, for policymakers, to be a little bit more reflective or to think about how, where, and why women have become visible in counterterrorism practices. And so for the book, it's developed particularly in response to the case of the U.S., but it's developed in a way that's generalizable enough that you can look at a country like Pakistan or South Africa or, you know, Nigeria or Brazil and use the same kind of uh, framework to really think about how, where, and why women might become uh, visible in those discourses and practices. But what that framework uh, really um, did, and I'll give you a little bit of background on how I actually came up with the framework. So for the book, I reviewed approximately uh, 500 uh, U.S. Uh, documents, speeches, articles, everything that had been published 
by uh, whether it was the Bush, Trump or Obama administration, uh, the Department of Defense, Department of State or USAID or any of the key kind of documents or strategies that outline some kind of um, aspect of this overarching approach to counterterrorism. So by reviewing all of these documents, I was looking for two things in particular. Uh, the discourses and the practices related to women in counterterrorism. And I was I supported this with about 40 primary source interviews with uh, leading practitioners and uh, figures that had significant roles over this period as well. And as I was going through these interviews, as I was going through all these documents, what really jumped out at me was that, you know, women were often referenced in very clear categories. Uh, and so, for example, women were referenced in terms of their um, their relationship in a, in a terrorist group as terrorist actors. They were talked about as security actors or practitioners. Uh, they were talked about in terms of uh, rights and equality. Um, there was about seven uh, different categories that women were generally discussed in. And so this was the kind of first step where, you know, you get a chance to see how women are discussed in relation to counterterrorism. The second layer of that was looking at the factors that impacted how women evolved uh, within the Department of Defense, Department of State, and USAID in these um, counterterrorism-related practices. And so it's this was a little bit more uh, how those categories of women evolved. So we look at women as security practitioners, for example, women who were uh, soldiers in the, in the Department of Defense or diplomats in the Department of State or aid workers in USAID. And we look at how their roles on the ground evolved and why that was. So it looked at things like the operational environments they were in that were evolving significantly over this period. You know, what uh, what initially the situation was in places like Afghanistan and Iraq evolved significantly over this period of time. And this meant that the roles that they played in relation to countering terrorism evolved significantly with that as well. We also saw things like women-centric efforts of terrorist groups evolve over this period. So, for example, al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, initially um, had restricted female suicide bombers, but then increasingly started utilizing them. And what that, uh, what that factor meant was that all of a sudden you had female suicide bombers coming up in, in greater numbers, but not a capability to search women adequately at things like checkpoints. And so that prompted a response for uh, practitioners uh, to set up new units of women that could actually search and engage with uh, local women who might be posing a risk. Uh, and so it looks at those factors that uh, look at how women evolved at the agency level, or there's kind of three general categories. So discursive factors are like the kind of language that was evolving in this period at the international level and the U.S. Uh, uh, level, but also operational factors. So looking at things like the operational environment and the operational objectives of the day, the, again, the women-centric efforts of terrorist groups. But I think that the third uh, aspect of this was looking at institutional factors. And this is something that in this space, I don't think we do enough of. We don't actually look closely enough at those institutions that themselves are developing uh, and implementing counterterrorism practices. Um, and this is what a really, really interesting angle. And I've got three chapters in the book, one that looks at each of the, uh, the main departments I highlighted. But looking at things like how each um, had a history of women and gender within their own, um, within their own programming, the kind of institutional limitations they face, things like um, bureaucratic limitations, funding challenges that actually directly impacted programming to do with women in some cases, but also looking at things like interagency cooperation and collaboration. And so those were the kind of factors that were really impacting how women evolved at that agency level. And then the last kind of component of this framework 
were the justifications that were often stated to include women. And I'll just really, really briefly touch on these. But I think this is something you continue to hear today. You you often hear one of these three uh, justifications uh, stated when women's inclusion is being promoted. The first is operation and innovation. So really trying to highlight how there's an operational benefit or an innovation in practice by women's inclusion. But there's also uh, the second kind of justification that's often stated is discussing women's rights. Uh, and so it's like it's their democratic right to participate or their rights are most impacted by terrorist violence or women's rights are indicative of a healthy society. And so that women's rights angle is often uh, another uh, justification used to to include women. And the third, I think, is probably the most common or the idea that women represent half the population and, you know, their gendered experiences and knowledge and uh, just participation means that you have a all you understand the community that is being impacted by terrorism and that can fully contribute to countering it. So that kind of half the population approach. But this is a, a general kind of uh, backdrop to the framework that I developed and uh, it sounds a little bit complex, but once you get a chance to kind of read through it, it does become something quite, uh, I think, quite transferable in its nature. And I want to get into some of the examples in the book. But uh, first, one other question from your introduction. You describe how feminist security studies have wrestled with whether to engage in security policy and in some ways have neglected gendered analysis and counterterrorism. How can feminist security studies frameworks and gendered analysis improve our understanding of counterterrorism and possibly even national security outcomes? Yeah, so I think that in this field, there's there's been a little bit of a debate and that debate has kind of wrestled with, do you directly engage with those policies and practices that have often been the kind of focus of critique uh, for feminists who focus on security uh, studies, or do you directly engage with them? and try and kind of change it from within or get a better understanding of it by working with these institutions themselves. And so the, the perspective that I take or the position that I take is that it's absolutely imperative to, to understand these institutions, their actors, their limitations, uh, the aims, culture, all of this, all of those components become relevant to understanding how and why they work the way they do. And in fact, trying to bring uh, kind of academic research and knowledge to use in a way that's the most effective uh, to them. So I'm very, I'm very, uh, I suppose, activist in, in my research. I really try and put my research to use in the world around me. And for me, that's meant really trying to uh, move this field towards, uh, or at least in my own way, engaging with these policymakers and practitioners to really try and make this research uh, be put to use in the world in, in the most effective way possible. Following 9-11, you provide several examples of how women's rights and oppression became directly linked to how the U.S. measured its efforts to prevent terrorism or improve security. Can you talk about why this happened and how it affected U.S. efforts in places like Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah, of course. And I think one of the examples that really jumps out to me the most is uh, it was a statement made by, by Laura Bush uh, in November of 2001. And she said, quote, the brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorists. So the fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women, end quote. And one of the things you really see throughout this entire period is how women's rights become a, a marker in some ways of success in this fight. Um, 
And so, for example, what that actually looks like in practice is when you've got a very uh, democracy-centric approach to counterterrorism, you know, there was uh, there were great efforts by the Bush administration to really implement um, democracy in places like uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq. Um, but this was seen as kind of a key tool to really kind of push back on the appeal of terrorist organizations. And that meant that as part of this, things like women's, everything from women's political participation, uh, their employment rights, their the rights of their and general status in society, the improvement of these became viewed in some ways as markers uh, in the fight against terrorism. But that there's another kind of catch to this as well, because because so much of the the focus coming out of Washington was really targeted at counterterrorism. A lot of programming that was traditionally kind of outside of the scope of security became increasingly framed in relation to its contribution to countering terrorism. So, for example, in the case of Yemen, there were women's rights, uh, women's rights program, uh, women's employment programming and women's education programming that was becoming increasingly uh, justified uh, because of its contribution to countering uh, extremism in that community. And this is where it gets tricky because it's not necessarily that uh, women's rights or, or women's uh, empowerment becomes a panacea for, for countering terrorism. That's incorrect. But in order to actually access that funding from Washington in this uh, in this period where countering terrorism was the only thing that was really getting that that solid funding, there actually became uh, limitations to your funding for important programming like this, unless you kind of framed it in that counterterrorism lens. And so this was something that became quite problematic. You couldn't just have a program that was good for the community that actually did probably inadvertently. Uh, stabilize the community and lessen the the appeal of, of extremists within it or extremist narratives. But when it starts becoming uh, utilized or almost instrumentalized, this is where it becomes quite problematic. Well, and I want to ask you to expand on that further. What are the potential implications of conflating women's rights and counterterrorism efforts? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think some of the, the concerns could come up with... Uh, for example, if, if, a women's, uh, if a women's rights program or a women's education uh, program start becoming viewed as counterterrorism related uh, or supported by U.S. efforts in places where the U.S. was viewed in a very kind of unfriendly way, and that meant that uh, individuals who are working on this programming could in fact be targeted by insurgent groups or be targeted by terrorist groups. Um, their work uh, could be directly funded based on its perceived contribution to countering terrorism or not. And so if there was a, a perceived uh, a perceived lessening of terrorism concerns coming from that country, then that meant that the funding might dry up as well. And so it became a little bit of a, a concern in terms of things like how these programs were getting funded and the actual security of persons working on this programming on the ground. You discuss in detail the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama What are some of the key differences between how these administrations talked about women and women's roles in counterterrorism? Yeah, of course. And I think there was there was such an evolution over this period. And, you know, when you look at I think a good example to look at is are the national security strategies and the national strategies to combat terrorism. So if you look at the, the two national security strategies under the Bush administration, Women are referenced very minimally, and they're referenced in limited terms in in relation to things like uh, women's rights, women's education, but also their roles as uh, security practitioners. Uh, And 
under the Bush administration, there really was not a lot of focus on on women in this space. But there was a bigger trend that started in the Bush administration and moved through the Obama administration that really focused on countering violent extremism. And so that really kind of more preventative aspect of, of counterterrorism. And this is something we see come up fully in the Obama administration. And so not only with these preventative efforts do uh, some of the areas where women's uh, participation and women's representation, uh, such as development, really start um, to kind of gain momentum in this space or, or gain increased relevance or perceived relevance in this space. But under the Obama administration, we also saw the first uh, National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security established in 2011. And this really became a kind of call for the U.S. government to really consider and engage women and think about gender dynamics and all aspects of their foreign policy. And so this is something that really started to, and you know, and particularly in State Department under uh, Secretary uh, Clinton, really start taking momentum uh, forward in relation to how women were being considered uh, and engaged with uh, counterterrorism and particularly CVE initiatives. I want to talk about some of the agencies that you delve into in the book, and you begin with the Department of Defense and provide several examples of where women came into play in significant ways. And one of these examples is Team Lioness. Can you tell us about this group? Yeah, of course. There were there were so many examples of, uh, of unique programs that were set up uh, throughout this period, very kind of female-centric programs. And so whether it was like Team Lioness, female engagement teams, cultural support teams, um, a lot of different programs were being stood up, particularly with uh, female service members. And so Team Lioness was one of the first ones uh, set up. And this was formed in Iraq in 2003. And it consisted of groups of female U.S. personnel who offered support services to all male combat units. And this was particularly to assist these units in searching and facilitating interactions with Iraqi women. So it was very taboo and very problematic for uh, for male soldiers to engage with local Women And so to create this kind of capability or this uh, operational efficiency, there were these units of women uh, kind of pulled together. And so they started seeing the utility and having women in these kind of roles and started kind of formalizing these units in what eventually became Team Lioness. And so as, uh, as the kind of training and equipping of foreign forces starts picking up as well over the years, we do see some of these uh, programs being handed over to, for example, Iraqi women. And so a lot of the uh, tasks that Team Lioness initially had were later handed over to local Iraqi women in what became the Daughters of Iraq program. Uh, and there were a number of other programs uh, of local uh, Iraqi women that were kind of uh, stood up and supported as well. And this is one thing that I do try and do in the book. So I look at not only uh, programs within U.S. forces themselves, but also in the countries uh, that, they, that they trained and equipped and partnered with. So looking at uh, different units that were set up, uh, like an all-female lead counterterrorism unit in Yemen, uh, programs like, um, again, a Daughters of Iraq program in Iraq, or some of the, the kind of policing and, uh, and defense roles that women were taking up in the Afghan National Army, for example. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
With the Team Lioness example too, I think this particular example provided um, kind of a good application of the framework because of the multiple angles of how this team operated. And one thing I wanted to ask you about in more detail was related to women's role in combat and how that became clear, the the schism between the reality on the ground versus the policy and even training support for some of the women who were engaged in those roles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of these women's units, uh, women-only units, really highlight a, a number of kind of concerns uh, in the way that women were engaged in this period. So, um, for example, you know, women were viewed as, as providing kind of a, a softer approach to those communities, or there were kind of, um, there were stereotypes that women would be uh, viewed as kind of a, a softer entry point or better able to get information from certain individuals. Um, like some of these programs as well didn't have very clear objectives. Some of the support in terms of kind of funding, training, and so forth was not always uh, standardized uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And again, there were a lot of kind of problematic stereotypes about what women's roles were in relation to uh, in relation to to the the kind of um, fights that they were in and the the situations that they were facing. But I think one thing that really became clear over these years in places like Afghanistan and Iraq in particular was, you know, women were inadvertently on the front lines in ways that we just hadn't seen before. You know, these weren't, um, this warfare was much more embedded. It was much more complicated. And whether you were a medic on the front line, uh, whether you were driving supplies, you know, a lot of these women ended up inadvertently being on the front lines, even though there were these uh, kind of restrictions from them having any kind of uh, combat roles. And that was really, really problematic in terms of the kind of support that they were able to access and the kind of recognition for the the work and the risks that they were um, taking in the space. And we did see women also, you know, fight and die on the front lines as well. Um, but one of the things that really did come out of these two conflicts was, you know, there'd already been a progression about, uh, you know, opening up more roles to women, but in 2015, the announcement was made that all combat roles were going to open up to women. This was really implemented in 2016. And part of that, well, I think probably a significant uh, component of that was really recognizing all of the the work and the sacrifice that women had made and their experiences they'd had, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan and in this global war on terror. Another theme you discuss, especially in this Department of Defense section, is women as symbolic examples. And there's some very radically different examples in that book, but some of the people that you mentioned are the stories, rather. Uh, one is Jessica Lynch, and then also the women who were involved in uh, Abu Ghraib. Can you talk a little bit about some of these symbolic examples that you discuss in the Department of Defense chapters and how those narratives contributed to how women were viewed in this counterterrorism effort? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the stories of women in this period were were generally overlooked. And there were a couple that really kind of stood out and were became, I think, symbolic in the in the public mind in, in very different ways. And uh, one of them was that of Jessica Lynch. And so in March 2003, uh, she was taken as a prisoner of war by Iraqi forces. And 
you know, the media attention around uh, this period and her experience there, I think really kind of symbolized um, how, how women were, were being uh, framed in this period. So, for example, uh, you know, in the Washington Post in uh, 2004, uh, an official was quoted as saying uh, Lynch had been fighting to the death during a gunfight, receiving significant wounds in the process, um, or she had fired until uh, she'd had no more ammunition. Um, but it was later demonstrated uh, that, you know, Lynch had not picked up a weapon or engaged in a, a gunfight. She sustained injuries as part of that initial hit. Um, and But this rescue operation was a lot more dramatized in, in public portrayals. And in, a, uh, in some testimony that she later provided, uh, you know, this was very, very problematic to her. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that really jumped out in this, uh, in this particular example, is the idea of kind of rescuing these vulnerable female soldiers. Uh, this was how it was being portrayed, I think. Uh, she was being fought for. She was being saved. And it really kind of detracted from the idea that she was actually just a regular soldier. Um, and it really kind of made you think a little bit about if it was a male soldier in the same position, would the reaction uh, in the media have still been the same? Or why focus on the case of, uh, of Jessica Lynch alone? Um, you know, a lot of her or another one of her uh, colleagues, uh, Shoshana Johnson, who was an African-American soldier at this time who was injured and became a POW in the same incident got hardly any media attention at all. So it also raises questions about, um, you know, who was getting media attention and what kind of framing and to what ends. And so I think she was a really interesting example of kind of uh, the public uh, portrayal of the war, to the audience at home. When we get to uh, to Abu Ghraib, um, you know, this, this became a very, uh, this was a very contentious, um, contentious topic for for many many reasons and particularly because of the excessive uh, abuse and in some cases torture of detainees in US custody and one of the the people that really jumps out in this period the most is uh, is Lindy England um who was if for those uh, that might recall pictured with uh, detainees in very sexualized and stress uh, stressful positions so for example there was like a a soldier holding a leash placed around the neck of a of a naked uh, male prisoner, or she was smoking a you know a cigarette and kind of gesturing toward male detainees, and you know a number of individuals were eventually convicted in their roles um, of this kind of detainee abuse, but I think the notoriety of England was uh, was quite unique in how it was kind of perceived to be this transgression of a traditional gender norm that she represented. Um, she was kind of objectified. Her uh, her agency in these actions was problematically presented. Uh, she became viewed as, um, you know, in this kind of male-dominated and masculinized uh, military sphere. Um, you know, it was being asked, was you know, was she doing these activities to, to try and gain kind of male acceptance from her colleagues? You know, she had a, a sexual relationship with the ringleader of that abuse, uh, Charles Graner. And it was suggested he kind of used her at this time and she participated in this abuse to, to please him. And so like, I think the, the, the case of Lindy England also becomes interesting for looking at how uh, women who are involved in some of the more problematic aspects that came out of that Iraq war, again, become kind of framed and symbolized in media discourses as well. 
And I think one thing that I would say is, while I do highlight a couple of these cases like Jessica Lynch or uh, Lindsay England, they were very unique examples in many ways too. And um, there were so many different stories of women throughout this period that I think uh, really deserved uh, attention as well. But they do represent, I think, different ways of how women were being framed in that kind of public, um, in the public uh, discourses and particularly towards that uh, audience at home. Turning to the Department of State, how did the role of women in counterterrorism change and evolve after 9-11? Yeah, you know, State Department was, you know, as the lead on U.S. foreign policy, uh, the the Department of State had such a uh, a significant role uh, throughout this period in, in every country that was being examined. Um, but what was uh, quite interesting, if you look at the Department of State, is how the uh, the two kind of key offices that uh, that became relevant to looking at women in counterterrorism were often very much siloed from each other. And so if you look at uh, the Bureau of Counterterrorism and then the Office of Global Women's Affairs, they often operated very much outside of each other. Um, but I'll, I'll give you an example from, uh, from the Bureau of Counterterrorism that I think becomes quite interesting for looking at how uh, one component within Department of State was really starting to think a little bit more about how uh, they should be engaging women in relation to counterterrorism. And so around 2007, uh, in some of their community engagement programming, they started trying to think a lot more about how they could better engage with women in local communities, because this had been something up until about 2007 that they'd really overlooked and they saw as a significant shortfall. And so they started setting up a program that eventually became Sisters Against Violent Extremism, uh, which actually still operates today, uh, but that really worked to engage with women in local communities and better kind of support and train them to counter extremism uh, in their own uh, communities. But if we look at, uh, for example, the National Action Plan on, on Women, Peace and Security, as well, that was established in 2011, uh, State Department took the the biggest steps to really ensure that things like gender dynamics and the roles of women were consistently uh, integrated and reflected in all of their programming uh, under the Obama administration. And you would see this in the kind of yearly implementation plans. They would show very clearly where they had succeeded in really making uh, the roles of women or gender dynamics uh, considered and integrated into their programming and where they were still falling short. And so I think particularly uh, State Department under Secretary Clinton uh, was uh, was one of the uh, departments that really made significant jumps in this period in advancing kind of women, peace and security objectives in relation to the security practices that they were uh, conducting. And this is something we've really seen uh, roll back a lot under the, the Trump administration currently. Speaking of Secretary Clinton, under President Bush and President Obama, we have women leading the Department of State during portions of both of those administrations. What did you observe about their roles as security practitioners? You know, I think Secretary Clinton is a really interesting example. Um, You know, dating back to the 1995 uh, UN uh, conference in Beijing, you know, Hillary Clinton had really been leading this, uh, the advancement of women, peace and security concerns globally for, for many, many decades. And that really came to the fore uh, under her uh, her tenure as Secretary of uh, State. 
at uh, Department of State. And I think, you know, you don't want to say that it had to be a woman that was advancing this this work, but she, as an individual, she was in she was a person who had for decades been focusing on this uh, agenda and really made that kind of front and like brought it to the forefront of all of the work being done within uh, within the State Department. And so again, whether it's the National Action Plan on uh, Women, Peace, and Security that was implemented under Obama, or whether it was the uh, Quadrennial uh, Diplomacy and Development Review. Um, really trying to systematically ensure that uh, that that kind of programming um, related to women was advanced in ways that just hadn't uh, been seen before. And, you know, I think she really did frame uh, the state, the security of states in relation to the the status of women uh, in many, many ways. And uh, I think... I think the work that she did during her tenure was some of the most admirable uh, that was seen uh, out of all of the years um, that I had looked at. And so, for example, doing things like integrating gender into all strategic planning processes um, was was something that was uh, advocated. Um, And she was willing to really work with uh, other departments and agencies to really try and advance uh, this kind of work. But I think uh, as a woman, too, trying to advance this agenda uh, did receive pushback within State Department in certain corners as well, and it was particularly when there was uh, when the the utility or the benefit from uh, advancing this the status of women in relation to this work or thinking about gender dynamics in relation to this work was not immediately visible. That's where I think it received a bit of pushback. So when that kind of operational benefit was not immediately clear, uh, there just wasn't an appetite by some to really kind of promote this work. And so you do see a little bit of tension over this period as well, even within Department of State. In your examination of USAID, how does gendered analysis provide additional understanding of this agency's activities and the securitization of foreign assistance? You know, USAID was, I think, the most interesting agency to look at of the of the three because, you know, historically, I think USAID's work, uh, the development work, the uh, the humanitarian aid work conducted by the U.S. under USAID has really been viewed outside of the, the sphere of security. You know, you did a development program or an education program because it was the right thing to do. But what we saw after 9-11 was a big evolution in terms of how development became increasingly framed in relation to uh, things like the stabilization of a state, uh, the the kind of... Um, the preventative efforts that could be utilized to, uh, to, to counter violent extremism in a society. Um, and so a lot of the work, the development work that USAID uh, had traditionally conducted became increasingly framed in relation to things like countering violent extremism. Um, and it was interesting because they had the deepest level of gender knowledge and analysis as an organization. And looking back to 1979, there was a, something called the Percy Amendment that was set up that really uh, drove that gender analysis and all of its programming. So ensuring that uh, development and aid um, uh, funding and programming did not inadvertently support, you know, men or men or women. That was ensuring that all programming uh, was uh, was done in a way that you do no harm to others in that society. So that gender lens was something that was very uh, visible in USAID. And so as you get into 
uh, USAID's role in things like countering insurgency, countering violent extremism uh, and stabilization, you see that gender lens come out a lot more strongly. And so they do tend to think a lot more about, uh, for example, if you're conducting countering violent extremism work, how do how do you shape a program specifically for men or women? Like they were a little bit behind the curve on this initially, but you do see them catch up in a way that is much more expansive and uh, and detailed than both state and uh, Department of Defense, I would argue. And actually, it was interesting because uh, if you look at things like the the counterinsurgency field manual uh, that came out in 2018, the development around that saw USAID sitting at the table with some of the Department of Defense folks. And it was actually that kind of gendered knowledge from USAID that was really informing how that uh, counterinsurgency field manual was evolving. And so whether it was, uh, you know, the engagement of women uh, in the field or how you support women in DDR processes, or uh, even considering things like uh, the diverse roles of female insurgents or considering things like uh, how women could both be victims and perpetrators of violence in some of these cases as well. Like I think a lot of the, the gender knowledge that USAID already had and developed over these years was in some ways and in some context kind of trickling into uh, other areas like Department of Defense and how uh, its work was being done. You end the book with a look at the Trump administration and the future of counterterrorism efforts. And we've seen a very different direction in terms of this administration's national security strategy. Can you talk more about what you've observed in counterterrorism efforts now and in the near future? Yeah. So I think under the under the Trump administration, you know, they really have under the Bush administration and under the Obama administration, there was always this all of government approach to counterterrorism, uh, at least articulated. You know, in practice, it was a little bit different, but there was always a defense, uh, diplomatic and development uh, approach to countering terrorism emphasized. And what we've seen uh, under the Trump administration is a real rollback in not only the, the funding and support for Department of State, uh, but uh, similar for USAID and a real kind of uh, uptick in the focus of DOD as a lead actor in countering terrorism. So that's meant that a lot of the preventative work, a lot of the CV work has really been undercut in this period. And a lot of programming related to women in this space has also uh, been been kind of whittled down. Uh, the one thing that has come up under the Trump administration uh, that is, I would say, admirable, and bearing in mind that this had been developing well before uh, the Trump administration took the office, was the Women, Peace, and Security Act. So one of the one of the big steps that we've now seen is the Women, Peace, and Security Act that was established in 2017. Uh, that is the first that makes the U.S. the first country in the world to really start thinking a lot more about uh, women, peace and security and all of its programming um, throughout the, the entire U.S. government. And the kind of uh, appetite for taking that up and really integrating it and harnessing it in a way that uh, sees results throughout that whole government, that's a different story. But um, there has been at least one positive uh, element that has come out of uh, this administration. But otherwise, I think there have been a lot of rollbacks and limitations in relation to not only programming that focuses on women, but really a lot more of the kind of preventative uh, work that is so important to uh, to looking at kind of a full spectrum approach to this, uh, to countering terrorism. Well, Joanna, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now? 
Yeah. So in recent years, there's been a really big focus in some of the work that I've done on on women in ISIS in particular. And so alongside all of this work on women in counterterrorism, I've also looked at the evolving roles of women in, in terrorist organizations themselves. And so some of my current work focuses on the status of women uh, who were, became affiliated with ISIS in Iraq and Syria and what their current status is today. So looking at things like the uh, rehabilitation and reintegration of women in some cases, uh, looking at the, the status of those that remain in places like al Hol camp in northeast Syria or those that are in detention in Iraq. So really looking at what happens next to these, uh, to these very significant populations. Uh, the second major thing that is that I'm focusing on right now with uh, with my colleague uh, Devorah Margolin is a full kind of review of the state of the literature on women in terrorism. Um, you know, there's been there's been research in this field going on for decades now, and I think there's been a real uh, lack of analysis of the state of the field as a whole and what we can really kind of harness from this research of the past and what we can really expand on and clarify in the future. So those are the two kind of areas that I'm I'm really focusing on now. Well, best of luck. Those sound fascinating. And thank you for being on the show today. No, thank you so much for having me. A Woman's Place, U.S. Counterterrorism Since 9-11 by Joanna Cook is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.